The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. A strong session for the reopening trades today and another tough session for tech stocks, breaking a three-day winning streak. I'm Kelly Evans. Ahead this hour, we'll get three stocks to buy in this rising rate environment and look at how much more pain could be ahead for these tech trades with the NASDAQ really selling off this afternoon. Plus, the great resignation. Are people leaving the workforce or are they actually starting companies of their own? The data points towards the latter. We'll talk about what it means for the jobs data and for growth. And in rapid fire, toys, rental cars and online dating. The news and the trades on each of those stories. But first to Dom Chu with more on this Nasdaq sell off. All right. It's session lows are just thereabouts right now. If you can see behind me what it tells you about the S&P 500 overall and that translates everywhere else is that utility is a defensive sector is the best performer and tech and discretionary are the worst performers. The reason why, if you take a look at this Nasdaq trade down one and a half percent right now with the Dow Industrials outperforming is just this notion that the biggest NASDAQ stocks are driving the declines. Take a look at the Invesco QQQ, which is a big ETF that tracks the biggest stocks in the NASDAQ composite overall. On an intraday basis, we saw a peak of green in the beginning, but it's been slow and steady down all the way to where we are right now. Again, just about session lows. And if you're looking for the reasons why, it is that big technology trade, communication services, also consumer discretionary. Look at the biggest stocks within the S&P, also in the NASDAQ. Apple down 1.5%, Microsoft down nearly 3%, Alphabet down 1%, Amazon down 2%, Tesla, a big driver of the downside, down 4.5%. I would also note, Kelly, that at current levels, if Microsoft were to close here, it would be the lowest close since October 26th. Just to give you an idea that that mega cap trade, very much a big focus. I'll send things back over to you. Wow, certainly is. Dom, thank you very much. My next guest says financials are the place to put your money this year, and they've generally been off to a good start. But not all the names have been winners. Just look at shares of Jefferies down 9% yesterday after those revenues disappointed. So which financials are best positioned for this environment? Joining me now is Kevin Mann, Henyon & Walsh Asset Management's President and Chief Investment Officer. Kevin, it's great to see you again. Let's hear some of your Beautiful. favorite stocks. Sure. I mean, it's clear, Kelly, that we're in a rising rate environment. Whether we get two rate hikes next year, three, four, or even more, as Jamie Dimon recently suggested, rates will be rising and the economy will continue to expand. Historically, financials perform well in rising rate environments when the economy continues to expand. However, what we particularly like, Kelly, isn't necessarily just the large money center banks, but rather the smaller cap regional banks community banks, and mortgage and thrift institutions. In fact, we have three names that you see on the screen there that are within the new series of our Premier Banking Opportunities Trust, those being Horizon Bancorp, Washington Trust Bancorp, and of course, Sandy Springs Bancorp. I'd like to focus on the first one just to give you a feel for the investment opportunity that we see. Horizon has a market cap of about $1 billion, a yield of about 2.8%, They've been growing their dividend over the last five years at a clip of 15%, and they have a PE of just 10.7. Income potential, 
growth potential in a rising rate environment, and low multiple. We think that's a pretty attractive combination. Yep. You So that's the detail on Horizon, Washington Trust, Sandy Spring, a couple other names you mentioned. So what would you do? We get results, obviously, in the morning from some of the biggest banks. What would you do with them? Why do you think they might not be quite and might not have quite as much upside? I think the larger money center banks have upside as well. But the additional upside potential that we see with these smaller cap regional banks are from the M&A perspective. We start to see M&A activity pick up towards the latter part of 2021. We think that trend around consolidation in the regional bank space continues. And also, we know that banking is basically becoming a technology game. Those banks that can adapt to the changing customer preferences for the way that they bank and this fintech type of movement are the ones that are going to best be able to adapt and survive. We think that comes from the regional banks more so than it does the big money center banks. Just a final question on this. You know, how much was pulled forward into 2021 or to what do you attribute such strong performance last year? You know, what do banks have to do in order to be able to keep that type of rally going? Yeah, I think what we've seen, and it almost mirrors the activity that we've seen in the bond market, right? So far this year, the 10-year has moved up around 24 basis points. That's on top of a move of about 59 basis points last year. Total move of, let's call it, 83 basis points, Kelly. That suggests that the bond market is already pricing in between three and four rate hikes this year. As a result, those financials have been positioned to withstand and weather those interest rate hikes. So as we hear earnings reports, which we're forecasting yet another record 20% plus earnings growth rate for the S&P 500 during the fourth quarter of 2021, we think financials will shine once again. But again, as we look forward in 2022, we think it's the regional banks that offer more upside potential than the big money center banks. Very interesting. With that in mind, we'll certainly keep our ears pricked for M&A activity. Kevin, thanks for your time today. It's good to have you. Kevin Mann with Henyon and Walsh. A news alert out of the bond market right now. Yesterday it was the 10 years. Today the 30 years up for auction top of the hour. Rick Santelli with the results. How'd it go, Rick? You know, very similar to yesterday's 10-year, slightly below average. The grade I gave it for demand straight up 1 o'clock Eastern was C-, minus, Charlie-, minus. and once again, it was mostly a pricing issue, meaning where the auction was yield-wise and where the end result was had a difference, higher yield, lower price. The one-issued market was hovering around 2.072. The yield at the Dutch auction, 2.075. So it tailed a bit, and all the metrics... Well, they were basically near or slightly below average of 10 uh, auctions. And I think that the real key here is the 30-year has been a problem child over the last several auctions. So the last several have been Ds, D minuses. So in a way, it's a bit of an improvement, but it goes a long way to demonstrate that investors seem to be staying away from selling aggressively in treasuries the last several sessions as yields have moved down despite hot year-over-year CPI and today's PPI, but they're still not stepping up and being very aggressive when it comes to buying at the treasury auctions. One more thing we want to point out, the dollar index continues to be on the soft side, and I would continue to monitor that from the vantage point that the European currency might be under a bit more demand because many investors worldwide are getting instructions from their analysts that 
Once Omicron travels around, it's traveling around quickly, there may be better opportunities to invest in some of the European markets. Kelly, Emerging back to markets, too, Rick, have been off to a really strong start this year. They love that weaker dollar. Quick point on rates. What should we watch now for Catalyst? So now that CPI is out of the way, I assume it's still, you know, the top tier macro data that could be the most important thing here to figure out if we're going to see that yield start to rise again. You know, you bring up a good point, and I would say keep it simple, really, until the next employment report, I think you could see rates drift. Now, granted, they may not drift far, but if I had to pick a direction, I think they're going to drift a bit lower. All right. Rickster, thank you. We appreciate it. Meantime, the White House is responding to the latest surge in COVID cases by deploying military medical personnel to six hard-hit states. This as the president announces plans to buy half a billion more COVID tests and free high-quality masks for all Americans. But are there also signs that this Omicron wave could be peaking? Meg Terrell is here with more. Meg? Hey, Kelly. Well, there might be signs in specific areas of the country and certainly signs overall that growth in cases is slowing. If you look at the total seven-day average, we're now at about 780,000 daily cases. Hospitalizations exceeding uh, last year's peak, around 145,000 people currently hospitalized with COVID. And deaths have been increasing as well, now up to 1,800 per day. If you look regionally, you are starting to see signs of peaking. Uh, In the Northeast in particular, we were talking with Mike Osterholm at the University of Minnesota, and he said he thinks cities like Boston, New York City, D.C. may already be peak, and we are seeing that in the data. The West Coast is going to be a little bit behind, the Midwest a little bit behind that. Um, And if you look at New York City in particular, and you can compare the curves as Evercore ISI has done in its graphs with London and the Hauteng province in South Africa, which really was the epicenter of all of this, uh, you can see the blue line there is New York City, and now COVID cases with Omicron are 5% below where the peak was. So we are starting to see potentially a peak, at least right here. We talked with Dr. Osterholm about how quickly he expects to see uh, these cases coming down after the peak. Here's what he said. It's happening exactly as we said it was going to happen. You know, now we're going to say we got another three or four weeks. This is going to happen. Then it's going to get better. It's going to get a lot better. And of course, we got news late yesterday on the vaccine front for parents of kids under five who are still waiting. Moderna saying that it expects to have results in kids down to age two in March. If those look good, then they'll file uh, with the FDA. So March, April timeframe for both Moderna and Pfizer at this point. Kelly, back to you. It's a, it's still a wait. I, I wish you could tell me when 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 we're all going to decide that Omicron has peaked. But I take your point about the way it's moving across the country. So we are still kind of the early barometer here in the Northeast. It does appear that way. Yeah. And this has been the way the pandemic's been in the U.S. the whole time. It's really moved regionally and been kind of different in different areas. But, you know, over the next three to five weeks, Dr. Ostrom does think this is going to subside. Well, all right. Let's certainly hope. Meg, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Our Meg Terrell reporting today. Coming up, the great resignation. Is new business creation to blame for the mass exodus from the workforce? My next guest says yes, and it's a bullish sign for the economy. Plus, a look at what's driving the luxury real estate market, and it's not quite what you'd expect. Think millennials and crypto. The CEO of Sotheby's International Real Estate joins us exclusively ahead. And shares of private equity firm TPG are higher in the first major private equity debut in eight years. They opened at $33 a share and were 77 cents above that mark right now. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. 
What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. Workers quitting jobs in record numbers during the Great Resignation. But the key question is, where are they going? One answer could be the surge in new businesses. My next guest says more than 5 million new companies were created last year, with business formation running 50% above pre-COVID levels. And this is bullish for the economy. Joining me now is Brian Reynolds, the chief market strategist at Reynolds Strategy. Brian, it's great to see you. And we should add, you're not an economist. You're approaching this from a market point of view. And what does it tell you? It tells me that the economy is probably better than the published figures say, and it's more productive. People are quitting their jobs and they're launching their own companies at a record pace. What about the boomerang effect of people who go start a company, realize it's a hassle, and then they want to come back into the workforce? That could happen, but I doubt it. If you look at the economic history after pandemics, and I've studied a paper at the National Bureau of Economic Research that looks at the last 19 pandemics, going back almost 700 years to the Black Death in 1331, the economy changes dramatically in the 10 and 20 years after. This isn't a one or two year thing. This is a decade or two decade shift. And people are making more money by leaving their job and setting up their own shop. They don't have to share their revenue with their bosses above them or the shareholders. They are the shareholders. So that's great for wages. That's traditionally what happens coming out of a pandemic. Real wages go up. The economy gets better. Because productivity goes up. You're much more productive if you're running a small firm than a large one. You don't have to sit in all these boring status meetings on Zoom. <laughs> you don't have to deal with these human resources bureaucracies. There's a reason why the TV show The Office was such a hit, and it's still in demand, even though it hasn't been in production for years. Your parent company, NBC, took it away from Netflix to put it on their streaming app, Peacock. And that resonates with a lot of people. Absolutely. It's iconic. I was even going to trace it further back to office space, which really kicked off the whole sort of <laughs> frustration movement. Um, but again, I think the, the point here is that you think maybe this isn't being captured in the Labor Department data. We've gotten one job support after another with these misses, at least on the payroll side. Well, the payroll data, which is what most people in this business look at, comes from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which is under the Labor Department. The new business formation data comes from the Census Department, which is under the Commerce Department. Those are two silos. And in Washington, silos tend not to talk to each other. So it's harder to access the new business data. Everyone's looking at the payrolls on their screen. The new business data doesn't appear on any trader screens. So you have to really dig for it. And this is a historic change. As you said, it's 50% more than what we saw going into the pandemic. 
That's 5 million new companies a year. And we're 4 million down in employment from the peak of 153 million before the pandemic. That's like, likely where a lot of these jobs have gone. So let's talk about the markets and where this leaves you on them. And you've been consistently bullish on stocks throughout this rebound. Where are you on stocks overall? And what would you say to people about the value versus tech trade? We're in another credit-led equity bull market, just like the last one that lasted 11 years going into the pandemic. And this is partly why the reason why the bond market hasn't freaked out, because they know that productivity is better than the published numbers. They know the economy is stronger than the published numbers, even the published numbers. GDP is at a new high, while payrolls aren't. So we're doing more with less. And that means the credit market is flooding companies with all the money they want for stock buybacks. Stock buybacks have hit a record. Retail investors hit a record, but they flattened out. Institutional investors have become bearish and big sellers since the start, since the mid half of 2021. And so the result is we're in a long term bull market with more volatility this year than we saw last year. You get these little dips in the stock market, like we saw when the Fed was more aggressive last week. But the credit market didn't miss a beat. Credit investors have bought over 120 billion of new corporate bonds in just eight trading sessions this mm. year, and they're buying even more today. That, a lot of that money is going to go into buybacks. Yeah. And final question on the retail front, because you have been tracing you know, retail flows and how much they've been a part of this rebound. Is it possible? I, I don't know how, you know, I'm just curious based on your sense of things, that that boom is over. I don't know. Maybe it's because there's, you know, the jobs are, are getting more demanding now. There's, you know, we have the reopening. I mean, what do you expect in terms of retail participation in the market this year? It's going to stay strong, but not much growth. Auction volume has tripled from what it was in the decade prior to the pandemic, but now it's flattened out at that higher level. So it's a, it's still a source of strength, but not as growing ra as rapidly. I don't think it's gonna be a source of weakness. I don't think these people are going away, but now we're being led by the credit market. The buybacks are at a record, and that's what's really driving these stock prices higher with some more volatility driven by institutions. Yeah, absolutely. Brian, thank you. All encompassing chat there, it's good to see you. Brian Reynolds with his own company, <laughs> Reynolds Market Strategy. More than four and a half million workers quit their jobs in November, and the resignation rate has increased across businesses large and small. If you recently left your employer or are planning to, Sharon Epperson is here with the key question and information you need. What do you do about health insurance? Sharon? It's a major question, Kelly, and if you quit your job, you generally have three options to continue your health care coverage. You could keep your job-based insurance policy through COBRA, typically available by federal law for up to 18 months after you leave your employer. You could buy an Affordable Care Act plan through a public exchange on the health insurance marketplace at healthcare.gov. Or you could switch to your spouse or partner's plan if that's available. It's a three-pronged decision, spouse, ACA, or COBRA, and, and it's important to not only weigh the cost of the premiums, but the cost of the deductibles and co-pays and your underlying health conditions. With COBRA, you can usually keep the same providers, but you'll have to pay more, maybe the full cost of coverage. So Aetna CVS Health Chief Medical Officer Dr. Q. Ree says to consider this when evaluating marketplace plans. You want access to the 3Ds, the doctors, the drugs, and the diagnostics. Leverage these exchanges to look at those high-quality plans, alignment with your providers in an area that is affordable for you and your family. Now, if you're still on the fence about what coverage to choose, 
Time is running out. The last day to enroll in or change an ACA plan for 2022 is this Saturday, January 15th. Mm, key date for a lot of people. What happens if you miss that date, Sharon? Well, if you miss that January 15th deadline, if you or anyone in your household loses job-based coverage and has done so in the last 60 days or they expect to do so in the next 60 days, you may qualify for a special enrollment period to enroll in or to change health plans. You need to go to healthcare.gov to get some more information. All right, Sharon, thank you as always. Sharon Epperson all over it for us. And to read more about this, Go to investinyou, uh, cbc.com slash investinyou. One last thing we should note, NBC Universal and Comcast Ventures are investors in Acorns. Coming up, banks are off to a roaring start this year. Look at Wells Fargo up 18%. Could earnings tomorrow change that momentum? We'll discuss. Plus Top Gun, Minions, and Jurassic World. Why all these hotly anticipated movies could give this stock a nice boost this year. The name ahead. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome back, everybody. Quick check on markets. You see the Nasdaq down almost 200 points. We're just off session lows right now, and it's on pace for its first loss in four days. The Dow is positive by 73 points, and the S&P is down by half a percent right now. Ford, GM, and Tesla all top picks the Deutsche Bank for 2022. Ford's up 5% today. Again, well, it was. It's up a little less than 4% right now. Highest level for these shares since July 2001. GM also higher. Tesla, as Dom pointed out, top of the hour, is negative by 4% today. Ford was the best performer auto stock in 2021, and it's outpacing GM and Tesla again. Tesla is only up half a percent so far this year. Legacy names are also outperforming in the payment space today. Look at MasterCard and Visa versus PayPal, Block, slash Square, and Affirm. Some green for MasterCard and Visa and red for the rest of the names I just mentioned. Affirm down 5%. Quick programming note, don't miss our exclusive interview with MasterCard CEO Michael Myback up next on Power Lunch. Now to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel? Hi, Kelly, and here's what's happening at this hour. Prince Andrew has been stripped of many of his honors. The Queen has taken back all of his military affiliations. Prince Andrew will also no longer be referred to as His Royal Highness in any official capacity. Buckingham Palace says that the prince will defend himself as a private citizen against a sexual abuse lawsuit. The Commission on Presidential Debates responding now to calls from the Republican National Committee for its candidate to avoid the traditional election debates. The commission says that it deals directly with candidates who qualify for debates and that its plans for 2024 will be based on fairness and neutrality. Arizona Senator Kristen Sinema says that she will not support changing Senate filibuster rules to allow voting rights legislation to move forward. Her opposition dooms the election reform push unless Republicans vote for it. And on the news tonight, White House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy says that he will not be interviewed by the January 6th panel. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. 
And 2021 was the sixth hottest year on record, though researchers say it wasn't far behind ultra-hot 2016 and 2020. Two U.S. science agencies say that the last eight years have been the hottest years since the late 1800s. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. Lovely. <laughs> Rahel, thank exactly. you very much, Rahel Solomon. Still ahead, banks on deck, not toying around, the Hertz rebirth, and dating stocks. All of these trades in rapid fire next. Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch you up on a couple calls that should be on your radar this afternoon. It's time for Rapid Fire. And here to break it all down, Bob Bassani, Courtney Reagan. They both join me alongside Delano Sapporo, New Street Advisors founder and a CNBC contributor. The first story today is the banks. They just keep getting hotter, up 10% to start the year after a 50% run last year. And tomorrow it's earnings season with Citi, Wells and JPM all reporting before the bell. But a note of caution perhaps from Jefferies, which fell yesterday on a revenue miss, saying fixed income trading was cut in half amid, quote, challenging market conditions. Does that set the tone for the other banks? Bob, what do you think? No, it does not. And I'll tell you why. Uh, we're talking about trading activity. There's only a half a dozen banks that do trading activity. Most banks, including the big super regionals, they don't have trading desks. You want to look at loan growth, which has been trending higher, better, not just Corporate loan growth has been doing better, but even credit card growth has been a little bit stronger recently. That's certainly a very good sign. Interest income has been trending higher. Okay, we could get the yield curve a little higher. I agree on that. But overall, the trend is moving in the right uh, direction. And finally, the re reserve releases are, are, are lower. That's out there. we got to watch that. But credit's very good right now. So for most banks, outside of the trading activity, don't worry about that. Most banks are fine. When was the last time, Kelly, you saw the bank ETF, KBE, at a new high the day before earnings start? They usually start selling off. Not today. New highs. That's true. Delano, do you like it when you see, you know, names or sectors run up into earnings? It could depend. Um, I think Bob makes uh, some great points that, you know, especially for the banks, I'm focused on, you know, what the loan growth is, is happening, especially for the banks that have obviously large retail and commercial books. And, and that's the biggest thing I'm looking at with these banks. I think one of the other areas is really that, you know, from a long term perspective, what the fintech players are doing. You know, I think I have a proportion of, of banks that I like when I'm looking at, you know, my asset allocation. It's a bit smaller, uh, but I'm really focused on those fintech players as well. But for the banks, they've been one of the biggest beneficiaries of the rebound of the economy. And as we move to interest rates rising and continuing to rise, I think that the momentum continues. So I'm still going to keep that exposure, Kelly. Yeah. Courtney's favorite banks are whichever ones are based in Ohio. <laughs> Always, of course, Kelly. Anything that's based in Ohio. Ohio <laughs> against the world. Have you seen those T-shirts? I've got a couple of them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking like fifth, third, some of the rest of them. Looking for some strong regionals. All right, let's move along and talk about Mattel getting an upgrade to buy today. The shares are up 4%, but they're only, I mean, I say only, they're up 20% over the past year. MKM Partners is bullish on their upcoming product lineup and say they can expand profit margins even with rising costs. Mattel also has licensing rights for upcoming films like the new Jurassic Park, Minions and Top Gun, among others, that could all boost sales. Uh, while they've been up 20% over the past year, rival Hasbro is only up about 3%, so a significant underperformance there, Court. 
Yeah, there's a lot going on with both of these companies. But if we focus on Mattel, because that's uh, what MKM Partners is focusing on, they're upping their price target and largely because they're saying they see the opportunity for net sales growth just from those licensed products associated with the movies you mentioned, the Jurassic Park, the Minions, and the Top Gun franchises to basically hit above the mark that they're projecting. Plus, then you also have these relaunched brands um, like Fisher-Price, Thomas, Mega, the American Girls. They've at least been on what they call a sustainable uptrend. And yes, there definitely is inflationary pressures and that can hurt profit margins. MKM is actually projecting it could hurt them by about 350 basis points. We're talking about higher resin costs, higher shipping costs. However, they sort of feel like that's already priced in and that's sort of a level that's appropriate with the stock. And, and we're seeing the this note move the stock to levels we haven't seen since about October for Mattel. So a lot going on here as the company works really to sort of mobilize intellectual property and these brands yeah. into sort of whole communities of what's going on around the movies themselves. Yeah, just wait for the metaverse. Delano, I know you think there are better names in consumer discretionary. Where would you be a buyer? So, so I think one of the areas actually like Mattel versus Hasbro here, because as Courtney mentioned, those inflationary pressures are big, but their biggest line, their first one of their first lines, their investor deck was talking about how they've increased the amount of e-commerce sales as a point of sales uh, in, in totality. So I think that's a big um, uh, thing here. And I think other areas, I still like the e-commerce play. We're still seeing um, other consumer discretions being hit hard. Um, and I think those will rebound. But Mattel here has done a great job. That licensing play is important. You're seeing a lot other other content providers providers, uh, not just product and toys providers, like Netflix moving to that licensing play. And I think there's going to be a bigger area here as consumers are still in a very strong position as of right now. So I do do think that's a good play here, Kelly. Oh, great. All right. You're loving it. Load it up. Fill your boots. Let's get to Hertz now. Despite all the meme mania that helped pull it out of bankruptcy, the shares are down 25% since they resumed trading on the NASDAQ back in November. But today, Oppenheimer is bullish, initiating shares that outperform with a $31 price target. Uh, by the way, the shares are a little under 25 today. They are citing improved cost structure, an under-levered balance sheet, and newfound discipline post-bankruptcy as catalysts for a rally. We know rental cars saw a huge spike in demand during the height of COVID as people wanted to avoid public transit, Bob, maybe moved places where they needed those cars. The prices are still really expensive, but should we expect the trend to persist or not? Uh, well, with the acknowledgement that everybody wants to go out, and so this is a you know a recovery play to a certain extent, I am not so sure about this. I was a I rented cars from Hertz for decades. They were my go-to car company. There was a major problem though. They were expensive compared to everybody else, uh, and I eventually moved on to Enterprise uh, and found them just as competent as Hertz was, but you know cheaper. Now I don't know why. Maybe I. Maybe I'm paying too much or getting the wrong cars, but that's what I saw. Now, I laud them for getting back out of bankruptcy. I laud them for getting their expense structure down. But this is even this is as competitive as the toy industry is. And this is a very difficult business to operate in with very high overhead costs. So I'd be very, very cautious about these kinds of companies. Delano, they got kind of the the buzz they were looking for with the Tom Brady yeah. ads last year and the Tesla mm -hmm. fleet announcement. But now it seems like investors are saying, OK, you got to you got to show me something more than that. 
Exactly. The price has run up so much. And now it's getting to areas where you have to understand if this is the price that you want to pay for a stock that did just come out of, of bankruptcy, obviously. And obviously, they've done a good job in the cost reduction. They restructured where it was 500 million of cost reduction. I think they've closed a lot of their low margin sites. But, you know, investors have to kind of look at the valuation here. That's why I stayed out of the stock, because there is a move towards, you know, more use and sharing of obviously. And this is a rebound play. Um, but but I'm just looking at the cost and I just don't think it, it makes sense at this point. All right. And the share is getting only a mild bump on that news today, up about a tenth of one percent. And finally, the dating stocks. Match and Bumble were in the red last year as the pandemic crimped demand. But Goldman and Piper both assuming coverage of Match with bullish ratings today. Both firms are optimistic on long-term growth for online dating in a post-COVID world, citing Match's broad portfolio of apps, including Tinder. Little less love, though, for Bumble. Goldman upgraded the shares to a buy. Piper isn't sold yet. They initiated Bumble with a neutral rating despite their quote, valuable women first approach match in the red today. Not even been. I think they were uh, rallying earlier and uh, Bumble is up about one percent. So without you know, delving into everybody's dating life, um, Bob, what are your thoughts on the stocks? <laughs> um, I'm tempted to say swipe left, but no, I, I think what you want to do here is what, what seems to be obvious is I was surprised when I looked at this the penetration rate seemed very low. And I'm surprised because you'd think the whole world, if they're interested in dating, would find these kinds of, between them, they own 50% of the business. You'd think that's pretty obvious uh, to do. But it seems like there's a lot of room to grow here. I look at this comment from Goldman. This sounds very creepy to me. Uh, <laughs> the lines between social and friend discovery and dating are blurring. And we see a path for incremental monetization opportunities in the year ahead. This is a little creepy. So the, the lines are blurring between friending people, no, and dating good. them, and we're going to find some way to mush it all together and turn into what? Of course, everyone who showed into? up to these new neighborhoods and towns, they just want friends. My town has like a, a new neighbors, you know, a group. But basically, these platforms could be more than just dating, I think is what Goldman's trying to say. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think there are, right? There are other specialized apps just for that. So why not? If Match already has data and they're already matching people location-based and, you know, certain likes, why couldn't you just be friends too? I don't know. Maybe there's an opportunity for that. But can you imagine, Delano, if I'm trying to tell my husband, like, no, I promise I'm just, I'm just trying to make friends. <laughs> He's like, why is this yeah. on your phone? <laughs> <laughs> that that exactly right and they are doing so so i know bumble i think is one that started a social club or is trying to start a social club in, in new york I, I would swipe right i think that is on match and swipe left on bumble i think one of the areas that bumble struggling is the growth and it's a it's very competitive space um especially when you're talking about how you know short the, the time span that people will spend on these apps and i think if you look at what you know bumble did they're, they're growing a little bit on the bumble side they're not growing as much on their other platform the badoo side so i think that's an area that of concern and that's why the stock has been hit so hard, but matches the conglomerate that owns a lot of different platforms, Hinge being one that's really popular, um, I, I believe. And so I think that's where I would lean for it. But it's a tough, it's a tough area. It, absolutely. <laughs> well said. We'll leave it there. Guys, thank you all today. Delano <laughs> Sapporo, Courtney Reagan, and Bob Pisani. Up next, rising rates and luxury. How will the high end hold up this year? Sotheby's 2022 report is next. And speaking of rates, be sure to catch Philly Fed President Patrick Harker in an exclusive interview on Closing Bell today at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to The Exchange. Millennials are making their mark on housing. Almost 5 million of them turned 30 last year, and they stand to inherit some $70 trillion over the next few years. Wow. 
uh, and they are becoming a driving force in the high-end market. Let's talk more about that and other trends in luxury real estate with Sotheby's International Realty CEO, Philip White. Philip, it's great to have you. Welcome. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks for having me on. So, I mean, is it normal for this age cohort to, to be already exerting its influence in, in the luxury real estate market? Well, honestly, Kelly, we've been waiting for them to enter the market mm. for some time now. So, you know, in the in your 30-year range in terms of age, that's the prime buying time. And they're really, as you mentioned, they're backed by this, uh, you know, this transfer of wealth uh, that's taking place. And so their parents, grandparents, relatives, in some cases, are helping them make these purchases. So uh, we've been waiting for this. And, and I think the you know, the COVID uh, that, you know, we experienced in 2020 is starting to drive uh, their interest more in residential real estate. How would you so describe... So they're, they're becoming less about renting properties. Sure, sure. How would you describe their buying interest compared with previous generations? Do they generally want the same kind of thing or do they want something different? It's somewhat different. I mean, they're looking for properties that are rich with amenities, whether that's, you know, pools, uh, community areas, um, outside, you know, opportunities. Uh, so they're looking for different things. They're they're also more uh, socially conscious about the environment. Uh, so they, you know, are, are looking for more sustainable properties than uh, earlier generations. Yeah. And again, it's interesting that this Millennials and to some extent Gen Z buyers will be a majority of 2022 sales in North America. So let's talk about what other trends you're seeing uh, really jump out at you next year. What's going to be driving the luxury market? Well, our report, the, 22, the 2022 Luxury Outlook report, really focuses on the hybrid work model. So, you know, in 2020, uh, we really went to more of a remote uh, uh, working environment, but now we think it's going to be more hybrid. And what I mean by that is that people are going to look for properties uh, that you know uh, afford them the outside opportunities uh, that they looked for in 2020. But they need to be near the communities where they work, so they're going to be commuter distances that they can commute. So that's more of the hybrid model. So that's what we're starting to see more of in terms of. Uh, the luxury buyer yeah, and their priorities. Meaning that, yeah. that that sort of relationship or proximity to work is going to remain important as they look to go back to the office. What parts yeah. of the country are you generally seeing as the, as the strongest right now? Well, Florida and Texas and California uh, are very strong. Um, you know, Florida clearly with the no income uh, tax uh, state uh, is really drawing people. Same for Texas. Uh, California, even though many Californians are buying outside of California, just the beauty of California, the climate is also attracting people. So, you know, really by and large, those are the three states. Colorado is also very strong. Uh, you know, about 30,000 millennials moved to, to Colorado uh, in 2021. Wow. You know, my, my sister's been out there for a couple of years now, so I, I totally get it. Curious if crypto is, is having an impact. Is, is it showing up in the luxury market? It's starting to, Kelly. Um, you know, and, and we think that's a trend that we're going to see more of this, this year particularly. So, um, and it, it seems that sellers uh, are starting to consider taking crypto as payment for their property. Um, so, and we have some examples of that. Um, and, uh, you know, so we're excited about that. Uh, we think that's going to be, you know, a new form of payment for luxury real estate. 
Yeah, and a driver of wealth, uh, you know, and uh, and some new buyers coming in as well. Philip, yeah. thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Kellen. Philip White with Sotheby's International Realty. Still ahead, tech taking a big leg lower this afternoon. What's driving the action and how much more pain is ahead? That's next. Before we head to break, let's do some show and tell where we show you the chart and tell you the story. Delta shares are climbing today after beating on revenues and reaffirming guidance. The carrier saying they expect a strong spring and summer. CEO Ed Bastian addressed his outlook for business travel on Squawk Box earlier today. From talking to our big corporate accounts as well as others in the field, uh, we looked at look at this as about a 60-day pause, 60 to 90-day, let's call it, because business travel probably takes a little bit longer to recover than consumer travel. And international might be even a, t- a touch longer than that, but not not too too far out. Uh, I think the spring for international will also did quite well, particularly across the transatlantic. Welcome back. NASDAQ was trading heavy already, but really taking a big leg lower in the past hour or so. Let's get to Mike Santoli for some explanation on all of this action today. Mike? Well, Kelly, the rule this year has been rallies in the big NASDAQ stocks, as we saw yesterday, get sold. And it just seems to be part of this pretty violent rotation that the market's undergoing uh, for a while, for a few weeks right now. This is a two-year chart of the NASDAQ 100. And you see this big run off of uh, the fall, especially we're back to about early November levels, basically the same as early September levels. Wanted to point out from September to January of the year before, we also had this kind of big peak and a sideways period where the market, where the NASDAQ 100 didn't do a lot of good. Now, take a look at this picture of the rotation. Uh, the NSSP energy sector against the semiconductor stocks. Now, semis are probably one of the strongest groups within tech, but still it's giving ground. And just look at that aggressive move in energy. That's really what's going on. The marginal dollar is flowing from more stable, growthy, expensive stocks into more cyclical ones. Uh, when does it stop? That's unclear. It's sort of a measure of perhaps how over-owned some of the big uh, tech names have been for a while. Take a look at this on a year-to-date basis. The e- Equal weighted S&P 500, the average stock or the unweighted version of this, is outperforming. In fact, it's flat for the year. The regular S&P down 1.5%. Why? Mostly because NASDAQ 100 type stocks that are a big percentage of the S&P are dragging it lower. So in whole, Kelly, the, the market is kind of holding steady, but it is uh, at the headline level suffering from the fact that money continues to pour out uh, of the big winners of the last couple of years. And these things feed on themselves, right, because everyone gets scared about the performance that they're seeing and then pulls more money out. Just, I'm curious about any other analogies you would draw. Um, First quarter of last year, obviously, we saw a similar move, and then the summer things kind of mean reverted. Absolutely. We've seen maybe three of these waves, and they've corresponded with the COVID wave. Uh, so, yes, it's a little bit of a, of a pendulum. Uh, it's only going to go so far. It's not clear to me the valuation ceiling on banks and energy stocks is all that high from here, but you have to see how the, uh, the earnings go through. I do think the analogy, it's a mini version of what happened in 2000, where a lot of the junky post-IPO stocks and a lot of the more aggressive stuff really got uh, pounded down, and then it reached its way to the upper levels of the S&P and the NASDAQ, uh, but mostly concentrated in tech. I don't think we have as dramatic a version of that this year. We weren't as expensive and overdone nearly as we were at the 2000 peak, but it's that kind of uh, kind of reckoning that's, uh, that's underway. That is an interesting historical comparison to draw. Mike, thank you. We'll see you again soon. Mike Santoli. Up next, we're sticking with the metaverse, whether you should snap up real estate, uh, the copyright fights brewing, and how the metaverse is crossing into real life already. We're back in a moment with more.
Welcome back. NFT sales topping $4 billion in the past month, according to new data. And companies like Nike eager to cash in. But it's not just sales of digital art that have investors' attention. Virtual experiences, like going to a sports game with your friends in the metaverse, that's the next frontier in this technology, or so says my next guest. Joining me now is Roger Dickerman. He's the CEO of the NFT marketplace Artifacts. Roger, it's great to have you. And I guess the, the big question for everybody is crypto has lost some momentum lately and tech struggling is what's happening with the NFT world? How are valuations holding up? Kelly, great to talk to you again. The NFT market is holding up quite well right now. In the first 13 days of the year 2022, we're looking at $3 billion worth of trading volume. Quite a lot. Some of it's speculative, but again, holding up right now. And I, I think it's a very interesting sort of early test case, the way that Bored Apes versus CryptoPunks are using their IP and their communities. As people start to ask about Web3 and how that's going to look, um, these are two different approaches. Board Apes, it's much more community-based. Um, you get access, you know, if you hold some of the artwork, to a lot more, whereas with the CryptoPunks, not so much. What is that doing to valuations? Yeah, the, the big topic of the past month in the NFT space has been, when will Board Apes flip CryptoPunks, meaning when will they become more valuable? We see Larva Labs, the parent company of CryptoPunks, you know, they are the legacy brand. They don't want to interact with the community as much. They're running it more traditionally, meaning they, they are not passing IP to the end user. However, Board Apes is the newer school of these avatar profile picture projects. The owners have leaned into the community. They are passing CCO. That's Creative Commons, mean, meaning they're basically saying, there is no copyright here. You take it. You do what you want with it. If you want to start a brewery, you can slap a board ape on the beer can. If you want to license your board apes to a music label to create a cartoon brand, you can do that. And we actually have seen the latter. And that feels to me more in keeping with the Web3 kind of point and purpose and ideology, if we want to call it that. It's funny, though, Roger, at a time when everyone explains the metaverse by saying, yeah, you can wear you know, your Nike hoodie in the metaverse, but board apes are taking their digital art and then letting you use it in the real world. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you just mentioned Nike as well. You see another different approach there. So Bored Apes have partnered with Adidas. Nike has purchased RTFKT, pronounced Artifact Studios. They have purchased them. We don't know exactly for how much, but we have seen Artifact Studios since their inception nearly a year ago. They have over $300 million in primary and secondary gross income. And tell me more about this Artifact and why, why did Nike go this route? Yeah, Artifact, we can break down. They have a lot, of, a lot of things going for them. They've been wildly innovative, again, in the space for just about a year now. Let's go to three areas. So number one, they came in, surprisingly, as a shoe company. They were obsessed with shoes, and they brought shoes in in partnership with the top artist, Felocious. By the way, happy birthday, Felocious. But they created shoes together. The NFTs that you received and purchased actually unlocked physical shoes that were sent to your door. That was pretty fascinating. Move on to step two. They create Clone X much like Board Apes and CryptoPunks, that was their expression of a profile picture project that did amazingly well, teamed up with the worldwide, world-renowned artist uh, Takashi Murakami. And then go to the third area, an area I'm quite interested in. You may have heard of digital real estate. Mm -hmm. They're leaning into gallery real estate through a partnership with a company called OnCyber. So gallery real estate in the metaverse. Imagine you owned a gallery and you could put whatever you wanted on the walls and you could put sculptures throughout the room and eventually you could invite your friends in uh, to share that experience with you. And imagine strapping on a VR headset or whatever that crazy future might look like right. and hosting a party for your friends with a lot of art. No, I can imagine it in the metaverse. I can imagine it in the real world and I can see how they're all quickly colliding. 
Uh, interesting to know it's still off to a strong start this year. Roger, thanks for your time today. Roger thanks, Dickerman Joe. of Artifacts. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.